Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. We'll get right to it. Tonight's topic is uh, development of doctrine, uh, 1845 to the present. And I should, I probably, maybe I should have made this clear in the advertisements, but I didn't want to do it. I wanted to attract more people, but this is going to be really a, a heavy on ideas because uh, it's about the history of an idea, the idea of the development of doctrine, if you know what that is, the idea that the church's teachings change over time. And I'm not going to be talking, I will talk about uh, some, you know, controversial developments of doctrine, but for the most part, I'm talking about how the idea and how it has used has changed since the 19th century in the Catholic Church. So um, I hope that doesn't disappoint anybody, but that's what the topic is. So if there's nothing, I don't see anybody in the chat or anything up there. I'll keep that open just in case you guys do. If there is nothing, uh, I will get started. I'll get to share the screen here. Uh, yeah, so let me get this can. Uh, and do, uh, how do I? There we go. All right. Development of Doctrine, 1845 the present. And a um, couple of things, uh, background terms, stuff like this to talk about. Um, here we have some more people getting in here. That's good. Um, what is development of doctrine if you don't know? And um, it might be better than talk about what it is in the abstract. I'll give you an example of what development of doctrine is. As I'm sure some of you know, uh, in the early church, uh, the church is it grew up in the Roman Empire. Uh, local authorities, when they, you know, Christianity was a prescribed religion, whenever some, someone was brought before the magistrate, because Christianity was illegal to be a Christian, um, they would force them to burn incense in front of the image of the emperor uh, to worship it, basically. And it was a test, because real Christians, they, they thought, would never burn incense to the uh, emperor's image. They thought it was an idol. And so there was this big, people went to their deaths over this, right? This is, you know, we get martyrs from to a certain degree. Well, over the course of the next several centuries after Christianity becomes part of the Roman Empire, um, a practice developed, of course, uh, we know this mostly from the Eastern world, but the practice of venerating icons, right? Images of the saints, of Christ, of the Virgin Mary. And so in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, um, this came to be a conflict, actually it's called the iconoclast controversy, because some people in the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, the Orthodox world, said to themselves, hey, wait a minute, it says don't worship raven images in the Bible. Why are we bowing toward these, you know, images like this way? Um, it seems like idolatry, and so there was a move in the, uh, the uh, Byzantine Empire to get rid of these images, and what happened was um, the veneration of icons uh, won out. And it won out partly because of the explanation that was given for why that wasn't really idolatry. And the reasoning comes from John of Damascus, an early church father, who basically explained that because of Christ's incarnation, because the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, became man and joined himself to a human form, which is made of matter, he elevated its dignity. And therefore, you can't worship <laughs> in icons, but you can venerate them. You can give them some respect. And in fact, this gets uh, enshrined in the ecumenical church's teaching in the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, 
icons are allowed for that reason. And so what that's an illustration of is a change from an implicit understanding of revelation to an explicit one. Um, implications of Christ's incarnation, um, which the church wasn't aware of or didn't understand fully, become explicit as time goes on. And that's what development of doctrine basically in outline form uh, means. Now, um, the reason why this lecture starts in 1845, I just gave that example from the early church, is that after the seventh, eighth, and ninth centuries, uh, the church was aware of these sorts of developments. Fourth, fifth, sixth centuries during the great crises over Arian controversies, the Christological controversies over the, the nature of uh, Christ's uh, human and divine nature in the fifth century. They understood that, that you know, doctrine was being explicated. But once the first so-called seven ecumenical councils of the church had uh, had um, um, been completed, there seemed to have been a feeling both east and west that, okay, the big questions have been decided. And so an awareness of development sort of went away. And so in the Middle Ages, you don't really have um, an idea of development for trying to, trying to you know, um, May, uh, trying to tell between true and false doctrine. What most people go on uh, from that early period onward uh, is uh, when they want to, you know, decide between true and false doctrine is the so-called um, um, Vincentian canon. If you know what this is, St. Vincent of Lorenz was a writer of the fifth century, fourth or fifth century, I can remember, yeah, fifth century, uh, wrote a work in which he basically said the way to tell between true and false doctrine is uh, if it is something that has been taught everywhere, always, by all people within the church, or by all legitimate teachers in the church. It was sort of rough, uh, a rough, like, in literally it's like one or two sentences, the phrase. It's a little more uh, nuanced than that in his actual writings, but it became a shorthand for basically, as long as it's old, as long as it has antiquities, it goes back to the fathers, the Bible, as long as it's been, you know, constantly taught, um, then you can be sure it's true and false doctrine. This comes to be a problem after the Reformation, because all of a sudden, of course, you have, of course, the Reformation kind of has to do with history because what um, the Protestants basically allege is that Rome corrupted doctrine, either through neglect or through, you know, just pure wickedness. Um, and they develop a sort of apologetic idea of what history is. History is the falling away from true doctrine in the, you name the date, early church, middle ages, and it's rescued by the reformers in the 16th century. And so you have a really intense uh, development of church history after the reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries, Protestant, Catholic, going back in polemical ways, try to find, okay, prove their position. Um, but um, for the most part, you don't until the 19th century get a renewed awareness of development of doctrine. Because again, my point is basically people, people thought doctrine had never changed. It had always been the same without any sort of development. That it had all been, put another way, it had always been always explicit, all the doctrines that are binding on the faithful, right? Um, it's only in the 19th century that that comes uh, to the fore. And so that's what this lecture is about, is to like, say, how does that happen? How does it affect us uh, in the Catholic Church here? And I should mention, I'm not gonna mention Protestantism. There is a history, by the way, of uh, ideas of, of doctrinal development in the Protestant world, it's a whole separate issue. I was gonna include some stuff, but it, <laughs> there's too much stuff to talk about just in the Catholic world. So, um, but that's where this eventually comes from because as we're gonna see, the idea of development of doctrine was not really a, um, a worked out theory. It's more of an apologetic 
tool actually, uh, developed by, uh, if you don't know where I'm going with this, John Henry Newman, to rebut um, these charges of corruption in history by Protestants. Uh, and as you see later on, be applied into you know, uh, apologetic concerns to the non-Catholic, non-Christian uh, world as well. But that is where it comes from, ultimately the, the, the impetus for this over the long haul. Now, why does this come about in the 19th century? Um, we're gonna talk about John Henry Newman because his theory is the one that everybody refers to. Um, but he is not unique in that. He did not invent the idea of development in general, either as a, an intellectual concept or anything else. In fact, um, when he's writing in the early 19th century, the 1840s, uh, it is already a widespread concept in Europe, Western Europe, Western civilization. And in fact, this is mostly due to a reaction against Enlightenment ideals of rationality, Enlightenment ideas of progress. You know, um, I won't go into this too much detail, but you know something about the Enlightenment. They tend to think of you know history is progressing. You're breaking the past. The light of reason allows people to move on from the past and stuff like this. And so, Romantic the uh, thinkers, a variety of them, and not just reacting to that, oh, reacting to the overemphasis on rationality and reason of Enlightenment thinkers. We'll take a very, this is what romanticism basically is in intellectual and cultural and artistic terms. They will emphasize instead of sort of enlightenment ideas of like, take, take, um, take Karl Marx, for example, the idea that history moves in very easily identifiable progressive economic stages. That's an enlightenment theory of, of um, history or development. Uh, what the Romantics will propose uh, in opposition to this is um, ideas of organic development. Um, society is not a machine that sort of, you know, gets updated over time, progresses in stages. It's an organic living organism um, that grows over time, like a tree or something from a seed up into a big, you know, whatever, a big mustard seed to a, a tree, right? And it's, that's a biblical metaphor. Um, Romantic thinkers tend to be very uh, nostalgic for, for the past. They want to find a con connection to the deep past in a lot of these thinkers. And there's a bunch of this in the air. My point, this is the big point takeaway. This is a common currency in terms of intellectual thought in the early 19th century, much, much, among a lot of different thinkers and not just John Newman. And in particular, he, will, he has read and at least uh, absorbed something from two different uh, sources on this before him. Uh, one is the work of uh, Johann Adam Moller, who was a German Jesuit, who in the 1820s and 30s uh, was a um, uh, professor at the University of Tübingen uh, in Germany. It's sometimes called, referred to as the Tübingen School of, of, uh, of German uh, theology because it is very, very invested in historical theology and doing history. And Moller is the first person I'm aware of to articulate a theory of doctrinal development. And I can't remember the name of the work. He actually publishes several works, by the way. Uh, in in uh, dialogue, by the way, with Protestants, he's also writing in a similar, sort of similar vein that, that, uh, that Newman is, in uh, with a, apologetics in mind. He's trying to, again, rebut Protestant criticisms that the church has corrupted doctrine over time. And he is the one who basically uh, first, and again, I, I can't remember the name of the book. You can Google his name and find it. But um, uh, he wrote a work in which he basically argued that, that the um, the church's teaching grew over time, and that um, developed from you know this explicit unconscious understanding to a more explicit conscious one. 
under the guidance of the church's authority. He's one of the first people I know of who makes the papacy a part of this idea, or at least the magisterium of the papacy most eminently, as the sort of determining authority of what's a true and uh, true or false development. And so he connects those two things. And so um, Newman uh, definitely knew about Moeller's work. We're not really sure how much he read of it. He definitely read at least some of it. He was also familiar with the work of certain thinkers that sometimes are lumped together under the counter enlightenment. And these are thinkers who, um, they're mostly political thinkers, who reject a lot of the modern, again, you think Jean-Jacques Rousseau, people like that, who reject things like human rights, equality, um, they reject democracy, they're for throne and altar arrangements, they're for the political power of the church. And um, some of them are pretty interesting. The most interesting one of these thinkers, by the way, is a man named Joseph de Mestre, who was a French writer who worked um, after the revolution. He left most of his life at the court of Naples, the king of Naples in Italy. But um, he, um, again, he wrote several works on religion in addition to his political works. But his, um, his theory, and this is something that's common to these thinkers, is that society is not a contract. It's a, it's a living organism, uh, which is connected you know, hierarchically um, and ordained that way by God. That's the other thing is that Demestra takes the idea that hierarchy is something that's built into nature. But he also says that, um, you know, again, society is not a contract. It's not some sort of explicitly written agreement. It's the product of unconscious development over time. It grows up from practices that are basically uh, latent. They become later on. They get more explicit structures and stuff like this. The reason I mentioned Joseph Demestra, by the way, who's a fascinating thinker, uh, is that Newman will mention him in his essay on development of doctrine uh, in the introduction. Uh, Moeller and Demestre are the two ones he mentioned. So he's aware of this idea. And then finally, the other thing that goes into this idea of development, I mentioned I was going to briefly mention Protestantism, is that um, the uh, creation of the modern historical profession is happening at the same time in the 19th century, both in a secular sense, um, the establishment of history departments and universities, but also in terms of Protestant scholarship uh, on the Bible. Uh, modern biblical and theological scholarship with its modern methods is almost wholly the product of German Protestantism. And they take a very, very, um, they're the ones who invent the, so ever heard the term so-called historical critical method, which just means treating the Bible, treating you know, church doctrines, treating church dogmas, as merely historical documents, as merely historical evidence, as if they were not divinely inspired. Uh, and so they're already developing notions of, already already devising notions of historical development of doctrine at the same time. So, and Newman's aware of this stuff as well, because if you don't know anything about uh, John Henry Newman, we'll get to him right now. Um, Newman himself begins his life as a, as a Protestant. So that's the next part of the lecture is deep in history from Newman to the First Vatican Council because, and this is boring for some of you probably know something about Newman, I need to explain it to people that don't, and this, by the way, is the image of John Henry Newman um, from 1844. Uh, he'll eventually become Catholic um, after that period. He made a cardinal, he's now a saint, uh, was canonized by, was beatified by Benedict XVI, canonized by um, uh, Francis recently. Uh, that's him the year before he publishes his great work uh, on development of doctrine. Now, a couple of things to note about him is that uh, Newman was uh, raised in the Church of England, the official state Church of England, the UK, 
And he was an evangelical in the beginning of his life, but he went to Oxford. He began studying church history and became part of something called the Oxford Movement within the Church of England. The Oxford move, uh, Movement uh, were a bunch of clergymen and um, scholars who were interested in, you guessed it, history. They studied church history, both the history of Anglicanism, the Church of England. They wanted to go back to the sources of Anglican thinking in the 17th century, um, its literary and uh, liturgical heritage, but also to the early church. Um, Newman himself wrote history, wrote a history of Arianism. Uh, if you don't know, if you haven't seen it, I've actually given a, a talk on, on the Arian controversy uh, in my course, you can go check it out. Um, and these studies, long story short in church history, lead him from first this Oxford movement position, which is sort of the high church, how do I put it many better than the high church part of the, the Church of England. It's the, the camp that is, you know, believes in things like apostolic succession. They have a high view of the Eucharist, even if they don't necessarily believe in the Catholic idea of real presence, maybe. Um, they very much have a veneration for the early church. Um, and he becomes very much opposed to evangelicalism. And eventually he studies this and he becomes convinced on the basis of his, his um, other things, his doctoral, his studies, excuse me, his studies of uh, church history, that Rome, that the Catholic communion, is the successor to the, uh, to the church of antiquity that came out of the ancient world. And by the eight, by late 1844, he's basically already there. Uh, and I'll come back to this in a moment. But um, the thing to note about this is that when he writes this, he's still an Anglican. And uh, recent scholarship on him has stressed that one of his big concerns in the first part of his life, definitely his, his pre-Catholic life, is uh, apologetic concern with evangelicalism. That's one of his big, he's really anti-evangelical in a lot of ways. And he wants to, again, rebut their criticisms of the ancient church, but now also as he becomes Catholic, the modern Catholic church as well. So he has an apologetic um, purpose for this, right? Um, uh, and as well, by the way, evangelical, also liberal, liberal Protestantism within the Church of England. Um, uh, which we'll come back to in a moment. But anyway, um, last thing is he waits. He's already convinced he's already going to become, uh, on, uh, he's an he's a Anglican clergyman. He gives up his orders uh, in 1844. He waits uh, until uh, he, um, excuse me, he waits to convert. He publishes the essay on development doctrine, Christian doctrine first. Why? He's hoping it'll have a better apologetic and evangelical impact. If he does it while he's still a Protestant. Um, so he does that before his conversion. So what's, okay, so what's his theory? We've been talking about this and um, why this is, you know, controversial and all this stuff. Um, well, the first thing to note is that in Newman's understanding, um, he, um, he's the one who basically emphasizes this idea, as I mentioned before, that doctrine, doctrinal development is moving from implicit or unconscious or latent to explicit expressed doctrines. But he thinks that these, one of the ways that this actually develops is through the, what he calls, quote unquote, moral feelings of the faithful. This is what he means, some, one of the things he means by the uh, sense of the faithful. That is to say, rather than teaching, even before you have the, 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 uh, the formal um, promulgation of church teaching as, you know, uh, logical propositions, which you have to assent to, right? Um, he thinks that the faith is, um, um, evident in the practical life of the faithful. In particular, again, 
in their intuitive and imaginative, you know, in their heart, basically, to put it colloquially speaking. Um, he's a romantic in this sense. Uh, romantics emphasize feeling and intuition and emotion rather than reason that way as being primary. And in fact, Newton, Newman was kind of uh, suspicious of logical, uh, of using formal definitions to define dogma. Why? Because he thought uh, when this happened, something had gone wrong in the life of the church. So he makes the, the, the driving force of development something that's not necessarily logical or rational, but, you know, subjective in a way. And he does this for other reasons. He believes, for example, that human language is incapable of capturing revolution in theoretic, theoretically rigorous propositions. This is why he stresses imagination and feeling um, symbolic or metaphorical, probably the best way to put it. Um, his theory of, of, of development is almost metaphorical. He uses the image of the human mind growing over time to describe how the church's doctrine changes over time. Um, and again, this is an organic, again, romantic way of conceiving these things. And, uh, and so it's in his, in his telling, more of an intuitive than a logical process, the way that doctrines go from being, okay, I gave you the example of the iconoclast controversy, from implicit to explicit. And, um, and so this is one of the reasons why, as you're gonna see, when he comes into the, the Roman church, um, a lot of Catholics are a little bit suspicious of him because <laughs> a lot of this is very, it pins itself on notions of human you know, subjectivity, right? I say this because, I'll get to this in a moment, um, Catholic theology in the 19th century was much more rationalistic in its attitudes toward uh, dogma and, and doctrine. That having been said, one of the reasons um, Newman writes this, um, this work is to distinguish between true and false developments, between developments and corruptions, right? Again, his apologetic purpose is to defend what the church teaches uh, in the 19, in, in his day, right? And so to do this, he gives seven notes of development. And I need to go through these to understand why, if I'm making it sound really subjective, it's a little less than you think. It's a little more nuanced than that. And he says, there are seven ways you can tell something's a true development and not a corruption. One is what he calls the conservation of type. And this is kind of like, and again, he gives a metaphor of this. It's kind of like your body as a human being, how even though your cells change over time, again, literally your cells die off, they grow back, but your form stays more or less the same. It does change, but it's more or less the same form. That's what he means by conservation of type. A true doctrine will, even if some of the parts change and it looks a little different, if the appearance isn't totally the same, it's still the same. It can still be the same doctrine over time. Uh, having the same structure uh, uh, in total is more important than appearance or uh, all the parts being the same. Conversely, by the way, he says a doctrine can become corrupted even if it appears, uh, even if it is the same in appearance. So it's more, again, not what, what it looks like, right? Because again, this is one of the things he's responding to. And the Roman church looks, you know, so different from what, you know, what's going on in the Bible and this stuff. He's saying, no, uh, as long as it has the same uh, form and uh, like same DNA, if you want to put it that way, that's the first note, right? Secondly, he talks about continuity principle. What is this? Uh, basically says that uh, doctrines, uh, various doctrines are, um, are representative of deeper ideas, ones that are almost more implicit because they're more basic which are often not recognized till a later stage in history. And these are principles, right? And he says that um, a doctrine, if it gets detached from these you know, larger principles, 
um, can become uh, corrupted and become, you know, interpreted in various different ways and wind up coming into contradiction with itself. Uh, and so continuity of principle, keeping the same principle over time, um, even if the doctrine, you know, aspects of the doctrine change is more and more important and can distinguish between a true and false uh, development. Thirdly, he says one of, um, um, he says one of the um, uh, things that makes a, a true development is uh, power of assimilation. What he means by this is, he says that a, a vital and living idea is one that can attract other ideas to itself, stimulate reflection. In other words, it can absorb other ideas into its form without losing its integrity and its coherence. So that's another criteria. Another one, and this is kind of important, is what he calls logical sequence or he called coherence. Other words, there must be some sort of coherence between um, the um, original data of revelation and um, uh, and uh, conclusions of theologians. In other words, they can't be totally, they can't look totally ex exactly opposite the different, uh, opposite, uh, totally different. Um, it, uh, it can't be you know, totally opposed to each other. Uh, it's also the case that you can judge judge doctrines by their consequences or their fruits. If a doctrine leads to good moral outcomes, it probably is probably a true doctrine. If it doesn't, it's probably probably false. Fifth, he, uh, he says anticipation of the future is also one of these. That is to say, a true development uh, can sort of in its early stages, when it's still you know vaguely or um, uh, only. Um, uh, only partially made explicit, can point to, um, if you like, um, subsequent developments. And so the, the, um, the coherence between those two things gives you the idea, okay, um, it's productive of future true developments. So that's another sign. Uh, other note is what he calls conservative action upon the past. And it's basically what it sounds like. Um, developments become corruptions when they contradict the original doctrine, the original revelation or earlier developments. True developments conserve and safeguard uh, previous developments and formulations that went before. In other words, and this is something he doesn't come out and say because he's not a scholastic thinker, uh, he adheres to the principle of non-contradiction. It can't contradict logically previous statements and eradicate them. For Newman, once uh, the church has determined that a, a particular development is a true one, it's permanent and binding and doesn't go away, right? Uh, and then finally, lastly, he says um, what he calls chronic vigor is a note of development. And what that means basically is just durability. Um, in his mind, corruption leads to disintegration and whatever corrupts itself can't lead, can't last for long. So whatever is vital, whatever is durable, on the contrary, is a sign of a true development. Now, everything that I have said here, by the way, I need to point out a couple of things. This is not um, in his hands, a worked out systematic treatment of this idea. What do I mean by that? I mean, he's not presenting a system. Um, it is uh, basically a, a series of guidelines for these things to determine what a uh, development is. Um, Newman is, a, uh, is in some ways a, a very conventional British empiricist, which means he's, he's suspicious of big abstract system building projects like scholasticism or Thomism, which we'll get to in a moment. And so um, he's not really trying to put this on a real strict philosophical basis, his idea. It's just a matter of, for him, probabilities, right? This is a probabilistic series of probabilistic arguments he's making in support of, again, more a, a work of apologetics almost 
than say a work of, again, rigorous philosophy. But that in essence is his, is his, is his theory. So when he becomes Catholic, the next question is, how is it this received at Rome? Well, it's received um, uh, with some trepidation. <laughs> and in fact, it used to be thought it was totally ignored because people didn't like it. And again, if you're wondering why they don't like it, again, most people in Newman's day, most Catholics, certainly most believing Protestants, thought that all the church's teachings had been given explicitly by Christ and the apostles, and then they had been handed down later. The idea of development was kind of a risque thing to sort of touch there. And so when he became uh, Catholic, Newman actually sent a copy of his essay to probably the most prominent theologian in Rome at that point, a guy named Giovanni Perone, who's very interesting actually, he's a Jesuit scholastic thinker. And um, just to give you an idea, some comparison of what I'm talking about here, Perone had his own theory of doctrinal development. And by the way, they actually have, a, they wrote a series of letters back and forth talking about this. Perone was, again, he was a little bit concerned. Newman's work was never condemned or anything. Some people wanted to, by the way. <laughs> they didn't do this, but Perone had some criticisms, but uh, he more or less accepted it as, as acceptable. Um, to give you a dip, what, what a different idea looks like here, Perone's one of the um, foremost examples of the so-called Roman school of the 19th century. He's a Roman you know, based in Rome, but just to give you an idea of what differences between uh, Newman and his uh, ideas of doctrinal development. Perone thought that development occurred uh, uh, not because of the nature of revelation itself, not because revelation was implicit and made explicit, but merely because of the contingent facts of history. Um, what I mean by that is he thought that the sum total revelation was not given to all the apostles equally, but was dispersed among them, and therefore among all the successor uh, churches of the ancient world. So how does doctrine develop if you believe that? Well, according to Perone, uh, it develops when all when bishops from across the world from those churches are brought together and they they have what amounts to the premises of a of a of a logical doctrine in, in Revelation, and they uh, which they they logically deduce the doctrine in propositional form. In other words, this is a sort of logical uh, theory of development. Instead of it being something that develops out of the feelings of the faithful over time, organically from implicit to explicit. It's something authorities draw almost like a syllogism, right? You get the premises, you get the major premise, minor premise, then the middle term, then the conclusion or whatever. Um, it's a much different way of looking at things, but it's kind of interesting, but it gives you a sense of one of the reasons why there was concern about this. It's a much more logic-based, much more intellectual in terms of how it happens in human mind but uh, uh, um, idea of development. And for a long time, Rome will be very, 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 have a lot of trepidation about the subjectivity of Newman's theory. Nonetheless, um, there is some evidence that it did have influence on Rome. In particular, as a recent scholar, I think his name is Michael Shea, wrote a book on this. It used to be thought it didn't have the impact. There's some evidence apparently that they did draw some inspiration uh, in Rome from Newman when they defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1854. I won't go over this in detail. I gave a lecture on this too. You can find it on my YouTube channel, I think. Um, but the uh, Immaculate Conception is a perfect example of, you know, the dogma itself doesn't contradict anything in the Bible or the, or the early patristic authors, but it's really not, it's really hard to find any explicit statements about Mary's Immaculate Conception 
um, before the sixth century or so. Uh, in other words, this is a, it's like a test case for Newman. And in fact, one of the rationales that Pius IX had for proclaiming this dogma was the faithful and their worship and their devotion to the Immaculate Conception. And he also, by the way, went and, and, and uh, consulted bishops throughout the world, the Catholic world. So, um, and there's some, uh, some evidence, maybe they were thinking in, in Newman's terms a little bit. They didn't admit this out loud if they did, um, but it's possible there as well. Having said all that, um, another example of uh, development where something's not totally expli uh, explicit, but then the church later makes it a little more explicit, happens, of course, at the First Vatican Council, which I've also given a lecture on. <laughs> to go look at it. Um, this is, of course, the council that um, defines the dogma of papal infallibility, which, again, you can find plenty about the papal authority before the year 1000, the first millennium. Even some statements that may sound like he has some sort of authority, it looks very different, the exercise of papal authority and the claims after 1000 or 12 months before. Um, and in fact, Newman was opposed to, to defining it, by the way. Uh, he accepted it, he, you know, he embraced it afterwards, but um, as I'll get to in a moment, there was a, lot, there was a real debate about this, um, especially outside of ecclesiastical circles. But the point about this is that, in fact, um, in fact, what's going on with um, um, uh, uh, in uh, Vatican I, they actually do reference briefly um, development of doctrine, basically, in, uh, in, uh, in the dogmatic constitution on, on the faith. I think it's the chapter on faith and reason. And they're talking about uh, even if so, there is some change, but they, they repeat the Vincentian canon is my point. Um, they sort of hint at it, but they don't go very far in that direction at Vatican I, even though, of course, um, the, um, the uh, doctrine of papal infallibility is kind of one of these test cases, right? They're making much more explicit and drawing many more conclusions than had been drawn before, uh, not many more, but they're making a much you know, stronger claim than they had before about papal infallibility. Which, and this is the last thing I'll note about this, was very heavily criticized by critics not only outside the Catholic Church, but within. Uh, most notably, a man named Ignaz von Dollinger, who was a great church historian, University of Tübingen, the Tübingen School. Uh, long story short about him, he was someone who um, had been a proponent of papal infallibility over his career. As he um, uh, his career went on, he became more critical. Uh, and he published a series of really serious attacks on the whole idea before, during, and after the council. And uh, his reasoning was simple, by the way. He, you know, he, he, and this is, by the way, the big problem, of course, that Catholic, uh, you know, the church has, of course, is that, okay, what happens when historical research seems to contradict <laughs> uh, church teaching? And of course, his, his reasoning is very simple. There are lots of, you know, regards to papal infallibility, um, it's easy to find uh, statements where popes contradict each other. <laughs> Not that hard to find it there. Um, so, and this is why he was so vigorously opposed to it. He was a, uh, a modern historian, you know, he was an academic historian, and he thought this was uh, obscured to some of the other stuff. And by the way, if you're wondering how the church responds to that, one of the ways they respond to that is the idea of uh, different levels of magisterial authority. That is to say, different level, different statements have different levels of authority. Uh, that's the idea of the, the magisterium and its levels of authority, which they developed, by the way, around about the same time uh, all this is going on, which is a whole other subject. I can't get into it. But um, the point is, 
uh, von Dolager's criticism gets him uh, excommunicated by his bishop in Germany because he refuses to accept the, the dogma of infallibility, and he dies excommunicate. But his case is 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 a is a um, um, uh, a sort of harbinger of things to come, because um, especially in, among in among uh, circles of educated people, there's growing concern about where modern history is going versus what the church is teaching, which brings us to the next phase of the lecture. Development in the dock, because after um, 1890 or so, up through a few first few years before the Second Vatican Council, uh, this is probably um, the, the whole idea of development is going to come into uh, disrepute for reasons that will become obvious in a second. First thing to note here is that that apologetic imperative that we saw in Newman towards Protestants becomes much more urgent toward the secular world. Um, there's a lot of heavy criticism to Vatican I all across Europe, all across the educated world. Um, in England, uh, the Prime Minister, William Gladstone, who's an evangelical, writes a, a pamphlet attacking uh, the dogma um, and attacking Newman. Newman has to respond to him, actually, which he does. And um, in Germany, uh, the promulgation of papal infallibility uh, is one of the one of the drivers of the so-called Kulturkampf. The Kulturkampf is the the attempt, basically, of the German state to more or less take control of Catholic institutions, uh, of education, of um, you know all sorts of things. And the reason why was the, the doctrine of papal infallibility made it seem like papal authority was a rival to the German state. This is 19th century nationalism is a big thing, and um, real knock-down, drag-out fight. And the, the result of it is, by the way, in Germany, if you don't know this, Catholics sort of withdrew in Germany into their own institutions after this was over in the 1770s, late 1770s. Um, they kind of kept themselves aloof from public life into their own schools, you know, into their own, their own intellectual journals, stuff like this. I mentioned this because as far as I'm aware, the first reference I, I, I've ever heard to the term Catholic ghetto, if you know what that term is, is uh, from a German uh, Catholic journal in the early 1900s. Other words, that's the source of the, of the church withdrawing into its fortress, as it were, is this Kulturkampf. But just in general, the, the promulgation of the dogma, as Newman feared, confirmed for a lot of people the church's obscurantism, that it was against research, that it was against history, that it was afraid of free thought, blah, blah, all this stuff. Um, and this is happening at the same time, by the way, that educational institutions across Western Europe, United States, especially higher in, uh, educational institutions, are coming under secular control for the first time. Um, in France, the Ferry Laws are passed, which basically secularize higher education. Secular universities are being established in the United States, late 19th century, happens in Britain as well. And so you're starting to feel the pressure on Catholics who are educated, especially ones who are in academia. Uh, and it's in this era where you're beginning to have the first, um, the first tentative embraces of modern historical methods, historical critical method by Catholic scholars, but even to a little bit limited degree by the magisterium itself. And this, one of the people who, uh, who's most important here in terms of the history of development of doctrine is a man named Maurice Blondel. Blondel is a philosopher who, um, who is deeply concerned with uh, the credibility of Catholicism in the modern world, all this stuff we've just been talking about. And he wanted to put the church's 
um, ideas, its teachings on a different philosophical base from what they were, which was um, Thomism, neo-Thomism, neo-scholasticism, whatever you want to call it, scholastic thinking. Um, because he thought it, well, basically two things. One, he thought scholasticism was too dry, too rationalistic, too abstract, too, too alien from the, uh, the everyday life of the faithful. But it was also, it was old fashioned. Um, it was out of step with the modern times. He wanted to have uh, traditional faith. He was not a Blundell, never, um, never abandoned traditional Catholic doctrines, but he wanted to present it in terms of modern philosophy. Um, in particular, um, he wanted to present, he actually writes um, a little work called History and Dogma, where he puts forward a theory of development, which basically sort of puts himself in the middle of two camps. One camp he calls the extrinsicists. That's his, uh, that's his, um, that's his uh, uh, um, term for scholasticism. Basically says these theories are a historical, they don't take they don't take historical change seriously. They don't take life seriously. They're just they're round up in these abstractions. Um, they don't take you know they, they they think doctrines totally immutable and therefore that's 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 no good. On the other hand, he condemns what he calls historicism, which is basically the idea that uh, doctrine of course is ever changing and essentially historically relativistic. That is to say that uh, if the church articulates a, a teaching in the Middle Ages, transubstantiation, for example, uh, that term can have no meaning basically in the modern world, it has to be ditched for another. He says that's wrong too. And his, uh, his, um, his answer for this is what he calls a sort of vital tradition or vi the, the living vitality, as he calls it, of tradition, of sacred tradition. Uh, and tradition defined not as, again, with scholastic thinking, as a series of abstract propositions, speculative truths that you have to give your assent to, but as practice, or that's where the philosophy of action comes from, action as praxis. And he means by that, basically, he, by the way, is a deep admirer of Newman, as are all these people we're gonna talk about here. He means the effective life. He means faith in an active living sense, uh, one that puts the emphasis on those things. He doesn't deny, by the way, totally, um, the role of, of, of propositional truth in defining doctrine. But from Blondell onward, there's gonna be a real line of thinking that it is mostly <laughs> this intuitive, imaginative uh, sensibility within human beings that defines uh, how doctrine gets shaped rather than, uh, it comes much more secondary, in some cases gets blotted out and totally the logical uh, uh, aspects or propositional aspects of, of doctrinal truth. Um, that's what I call a vitalist theory of, of development there. Blondell's theories make some people nervous. Um, he's never condemned for them, however. <laughs> the modernists were. <laughs> uh, by the way, he was friends with all these people, but, and I'm actually not going to get too, too deep of a dive into this. I'm doing a lecture on this in a couple months. Um, but a series of thinkers, two major ones that I'm mentioning here, um, they are basically the representatives of that position that Blondell calls historicist. And Basically, just a couple of things. Alfred Loisy is the Frenchman, a French priest, who um, is one of the more notable um, figures in this, this story. He is someone who takes Newman as his starting point, and he will take Newman's idea that human language can't fully capture um, um, divine revelation, which again, in Newman, that, that's not his 
absolute as it sounds. He means it can't capture it fully, which is not the same thing as it can't capture it all. <laughs> and he basically says, uh, what Wazi does, that no language can't capture revelation at all. Human language cannot capture um, uh, revelation at all. In fact, nothing can, basically, not reason, not experience. No essence of, of revelation, the truth of revelation, can be uh, sort of exempted from the flow of history. And so in his, uh, in his mind, truth really is immutable, basically. Uh, it's just totally unknowable. <laughs> uh, only doctrine can be known. And doctrine, of course, is the relative expression, which changes from age to age about that immutable truth, which is to say he separates almost completely doctrine from revelation. Um, as he puts it, human concepts should, be, uh, quote, should be seen as symbols of a reality infinitely surpassing every created intelligence, unquote. In other words, for Loisy, the human mind simply cannot grasp the divine. All we can do is have sort of uh, nice symbols that approximate it, which is, of course, it, not what the Catholic Church, especially at the time, um, believes or believed. Um, and this is um, late 1890s, early 1900s. Um, basically, he does, you know, he is, this is, he's sort of the, the, Loisy is, is the sort of poster child for what we call modernism, because what it amounts to is this idea that, yeah, doctrine is ever-changing. It's not stable. It's not immutable. Um, it can contradict itself, apparently, because it's not necessarily connected to revelation at all, basically. Uh, and in fact, he um, tries to write a book, by the way, explaining his position called The Gospel in, Gospel in the Church in 1903. Uh, it gets him condemned, by the way, for heresy. Um, and, um, and in fact, he seems to suggest um, that, you know, doctrines that have no implicit or explicit warrant in the gospel or earlier tradition uh, can be legit legitimate developments. And so he basically abandons all of those, all of those nuances in Newman that sort of, you know, kept it from becoming a totally subjective process. He sort of takes them out. And... Um, Although one of the things to note about uh, Wazi, I've been mentioning all this stuff about you know apologetics, he always insisted that he was writing uh, apologetics and not doing necessarily theology. Uh, he claimed that he was writing for an audience of Protestants and non-believers, which is very interesting. And um, this is also uh, uh, something that gets into the work of George Tiro, who's another one um, these modernists. He, he also basically has a complete separation of theology from revelation. Again, uh, for him, uh, like for Wazi, revelation is something so unique, so unchanging, it simply doesn't have anything to do <laughs> with doctrine or theology. And hence, there is no devil on the doctrine for the mature uh, Tyrrell in his, um, in his uh, way of thinking. Um, also because to hit in his mind, Christ didn't reveal a series of truths in propositional form. He, what he revealed was a way of life, kind of like Buddhism. So one could only experience this and not express it uh, uh, propositionally. So it's basically this sort of combination of agnosticism, historicism, all these sort of historical relativism um, that basically makes doctrine a complete sort of um, um, uh, sort of ever-changing thing in their hands which is what gets their theories condemned in 1907. A um, couple of documents, Lamentabili um, Sane and then Pascendi Gagi Dominis are 
uh, issued by the Vatican. And they condemn, I think, 13 propositions. They don't name Gwazi or Tyrrell, but they both of them are eventually excommunicated and they die outside the church. But basically, uh, I won't go into that. I'll, I'll get there. I'm going to save their actual stories for um, uh, the future lecture. But um, this is a turning point because for the next half century or so, the uh, Rome is going to be really, really, really paranoid about anything that smacks of anything like this. And in fact, this is the nadir of Newman's reputation, by the way. Um, he had been made a cardinal by Leo XIII. He died in the church's good graces. And again, he was never, no one ever condemned him. Um, and by the way, no one condemned Blondel either, if you're wondering. Blondel was actually, um, uh, the Pope, Pius X, actually sent a message to him. Because um, his ideas are kind of similar to the modernists, not nearly as historically relativist. Uh, assuring him he was an, intent, an intended target of this. But this was the nadir of Newman's reputation, and therefore of this, this idea of, of development, which frightened a lot of people because they thought, hey, we're going to give into like, you know, uh, we're going to become, you know, uh, it'll become this just sort of, it'll just dissolve into uh, doctrinal, just dissolve, dissolve into ever-changing cultural expressions or something like this. So leads to a real clampdown, by the way, uh, pretty severe uh, in many unfortunate ways uh, on, uh, on those ideas. Again, more on that next later uh, couple months. <clears throat> now, there were responses to this, um, to modernism, by neo-scholastic thinkers. And some of them are interesting. I'm going to go through names here. Um, one of the things that all these modern thinkers we're going to talk about here tend to emphasize, again, some, some of them, it's, it's, a, it's a categorical rejection of logical theories. Others, it's a sort of total diminution of their significance. The scholastics wanted to preserve the idea that they could draw logically, um, um, logically, like again, almost syllogistic, syllogistically, if you know, that's an actual word, um, later doctrines from earlier ones. And they'll come up with some interesting ideas, actually. They don't all work, but I think on their own, but um, people like, uh, there's a French thinker named Ambroise Gardet writing in the aftermath of the, of the, uh, the modernist uh, crisis in 1907. Um, he, he proposed a theory of development, which he called, um, uh, well, which he insisted on was actually what he called conceptual homogeneity in uh, doctrinal development um, between revelation itself, Catholic dogmas, and Catholic theology. And basically what he says is that um, even though God condescended to human beings to subject himself to our history uh, and the mental structures of human nature, he still says that human beings are capable of what he calls, quote unquote, absolute affirmations that can describe the reality of revelation in unconditional terms. And um, so what happens in his mind is when uh, in revelation is God takes our natural capacity for making affirmations and through grace inspired the you know, sacred writers or whatever to speak eternal truths in human language in a specific point in human history. Um, raising up man's natural capacity by grace in order to be able to comprehend eternal and unchanging truth. Uh, he bases this idea, by the way, on a, um, on a theory uh, of what he calls common sense. And what he means by that is um, not sort of like if you're familiar with like empiricism, but he means that there are certain basic terms, basic ideas, basic concepts that are, they're not technical terms, but they're basic I'm probably getting the language right here, basic terms that can be understood across cultures. 
Um, this is his response, by the way, to the idea that, well, if language is ever changing, nobody, no, no culture, cultures can understand each other, right? And his says, no, he says there are some basic things, common sense, and there are several the uh, scholastic theologians who develop this idea uh, across history, um, built into human nature, which can be, again, through grace, sort of elevated to understand and comprehend. In other words, God can sort of help us out in making doctrine known to us. It's not totally unknowable, like those uh, modernists say. Um, you also have a couple of other developments that are interesting. One is, um, it's actually Francisco Maranzolo, the Spanish Dominican, makes this distinction um, in trying to preserve these logical theories. He makes a distinction between cause and outcome of development. Um, Maranzolo accepts the idea, and I think you have to, by the way, the historical evidence is, is all in favor, is that it says at least sometimes, Doctrinal developments are the result of non-rational factors, right? The development of you know societal, you know, things that things other than logical development, right? Um, he accepts that, but he says the outcome still is, at least providentially, still logically coherent and logically uh, connected to revelation. So you can make that distinction. And then finally, um, um, a couple of thinkers, scholastic thinkers, do toy with the idea of trying to again, grapple with this idea of subjectivity to a degree. One of them, a guy named Edgar Danis, was a Jesuit from uh, Netherlands, I think, or no, Belgium, excuse me, um, posited what he called an inclinatio fidei, an inclination to, of faith, uh, an intuitive attraction to God, which he says is sort of like, um, again, it's a little bit like, um, um, what Blondell is talking about. It's a sort of growing, a, a sort of awareness or attraction toward divine truth. And that basically, even when there is a logical connection, you still need to have this attraction uh, to it, basically, that's put into you by God, essentially. Um, and yet he still saves the logical part of, of uh, scholastic theories by making a distinction between those theories that are, yes, they are, you, you can have a natural certainty of the development, from explicit to implicit, implicit, implicit to explicit, sorry, through logical means on the basis of reason, but there's ones that other ones that are merely probable, right? Other developments where you know it's not clear clear that it's totally implicit, and yet you can have this supernatural uh, character imprinted onto your, um, uh, I guess by God by grace again, uh, that it wouldn't otherwise possess. And again, the example he gives, the Immaculate Conception, right? where it's not exactly clear that it's explicit in the uh, you know original date of revelation, but it's closely related, it's not contradictory. And there is this powerful sense among the faithful of being attracted to it. Um, and so he tries to preserve some of this. I say this because these neo-scholastic responses I think are, are deserve, more, deserve more attention than they get actually. Uh, but there is, the point is they don't just lay down and die and they're not really, but they are trying to preserve some connection of intellection and reason and all this. And we'll show why in a moment. Doing okay on time. All right. Um, one of the turning points for the development, uh, uh, development of doctrine is the debate among uh, debate over the so-called Nouvelle Theologie following World War II. And this is a debate which is special. And it's special because it's mostly French. <laughs> uh, I, I can't go into, I won't go into all the details here. This might be the subject for another lecture, but um, there's a serious debate following World War II from a couple of years, 1946, 48, 50, 1950, between mostly a group of Jesuits at Fourier in France, a few Dominicans from a place called Sochois in Belgium, 
against an older group of scholastic theologians. And they're arguing about a lot of things. Actually, they're arguing over the nature of theology itself. But one of the things they fall out over is the notion of doctrinal development. Because again, most of these scholastic thinkers are very wary of anything subjective. Those ones that I just mentioned before are kind of the exceptions. A younger group of theologians following the war basically tried to sort of pick a fight in some ways with their, with their elders by sort of going back to and picking up on some of those modernist themes, actually. Um, um, a couple of articles were published in 1946 in, uh, I'm gonna go through the journal's names, which made some racy claims, which basically reintroduced the idea that, well, they introduced a distinction between truth and its historical expressions, right? Remember, that was a that was a key thing with the modernists, right? Truth is one thing, doctrinal expression is another. Um, where these, again, these thinkers, these, uh, and by the way, the term nouvelle theologie was a, it was a, uh, it was a slur thrown against them by their, <laughs> by their Dominican opponents who didn't like it. Um, new meaning it wasn't scholastic. That's what they didn't like about it. Um, basically saying that theology needed to change the times. Um, I'll give you two examples of this because it's really important to, to kind of flash this out. Um, uh, article by Jean Donielu, who was a uh, um, uh, big name after Vatican II, but uh, he wrote an article uh, called Contemporary Trends in, the, uh, in, I think it's Theological Thought. Anyway, this is a quotation from the work, giving a sense of what they were arguing for. Uh, this is Donielu, um, quote, if present theological roots, uh, uh, thought roots itself once more in the solid and nourishing soil of the Bible, the fathers and the liturgy, um, and by the way, that was one of the goals of these Nouvelle theologians. They wanted to emphasize history, the history of the church, but they also wanted to emphasize in terms of development, contingency, and subjectivity. They also wanted to go back to the Bible and to the fathers. Sorry, I stopped in the middle of the quotation, but I had to, I had to put that in there. And continue, he continues, still in order to be a living theology, it will also have to enrich itself by contact with contemporary thought. And the temptation here would be the laziness that makes us take the vestment of truth for the truth itself. And because the words of Christ do not pass away, it would persuade us to dispense ourselves from modifying the forms in which we must express them. And quote. The other major expression of this uh, idea, and by the way, the distinction they're making, by the way, is between revelation, divine truth, which is immutable, and its expressions, forms, they're never very consistent on the terms, which are subject to history, contingency, subjectivity. Uh, again, in their quotation, this is from a man named Bouillard, Henri Bouillard, uh, who wrote a book in 1946, which is actually the thing that sets all this off. Um, it's called Grace and Conversion in Aquinas, and mostly it has nothing to do with this, but the end of the book has a little like epilogue where he basically goes whole hog in form of, it, it really goes at the heart of, uh, um, uh, into a, um, uh, into a, a, a sort of historicist view of doctrinal development. Uh, I'll quote him here, quote. Uh, he's talking about uh, change here. Uh, yeah, here's some, uh, here's some people here, if you could. Uh, yeah, please mute yourself. Uh, I, I'm hearing some noise in the background if you haven't already. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, let me read it. It says, when the mind evolves, this is Bouillard, 
An immutable truth cannot be maintained except thanks to a simultaneous and correlative evolution of all its notions, which maintain among themselves the same relation. Uh, a theology that wouldn't, that is not current would be a false theology, unquote. Basically, he says that you can change the underlying concepts of the church's dogmas, which he uses to define dogmas, without losing the meaning of it. And the example he gives of this, Bouillard, is the idea of formal cause, um, which is an Aristotelian idea, uh, which goes back to Aristotle, which was used in the Council of Trent's definition on the church's teaching on justification, right? Remember, remember Council of Trent was replying to Protestants on the justification question? And so um, this is what set off uh, Reginald Garrigou de Grange, who was the great um, scholastic theologian of the age. He wrote a, an article called, Where is the New Theology Going? And he basically accused them of being modernists. And I, I, I say that because that was a really touchy subject at that point. Accusing somebody of modernism could get them condemned as a heretic. And so, but he was uh, horrified by this idea because what they, what they, what I just, you know, what the upshot of those quotations uh, suggest is they wanted to put the church's um, theory of doctrinal development, but also its, its theology as a whole on a different philosophical footing from, um, from uh, scholasticism. And this, and this, um, And this, and this is what, um, uh, and this was where the rubber met the road, because what Gerlogrand said in response to this is, um, if you change the concepts associated with ideas, not the words, right? You can have verbal equivalents for different words across cultures, across time, you'll change the meaning itself. You can't have two opposed concepts um, mean the same thing. You change the concepts, you change the meaning. In other words, um, you know, if you change the concept of justification, for example, uh, in the 20th century, when he's writing, basically, what you're saying is that um, the concept uh, that was embedded in the uh, Council of Trent is no longer true. And so I mentioned this because what, uh, in some ways, uh, Gerard de Lagrange was reacting to was, because uh, the implications of what Bouillard was saying was that really the church's definitions dogmas even uh, are not permanent. Um, other words, because um, this is again, something very different from what Newman was saying. He's saying, once you have a dogmatic definition, it's permanent, you can't get rid of it. What some of these, some of these new theologians were saying was we need to ditch some of this. And the reason why, by the way, again, it goes back to the apologetic drive. They were desperate, a lot of these people to make Catholicism compelling to educated modern people. And one of their things, and one of the things about these uh, Nouvel theologians, they really were, they really hated scholasticism in ways that were almost, to my way of thinking, irrational. Um, but one of the reasons was like, this stuff is too old fashioned. It'll never convince modern people we have to do this. Uh, what happens, by the way, is that um, um, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't want to go too much longer than this. I promised an hour. I'm trying not to go too long here. Um, Eventually, um, uh, by 1950, this had become to the attention of Rome. Uh, I mentioned Gerard Lagrange, who was the, one of the main opponents of these French thinkers uh, who wanted to do all this stuff. Uh, he was, a, he was a, a member of the Holy Office, the Inquisition. 
And um, there were no formal condemnations issued, but Pius XII issued a, a, uh, an encyclical called Humani Generis, in which he commented negatively on certain trends in theology, in particular talking about uh, theologians who wanted to change the church's perennial concepts associated with its, with its, with its dogmas. Uh, it was taken to be a condemnation of, their, of these uh, uh, Nouvelle theologians, some of whom were removed from their teaching posts as a result. However, some of the later thinkers involved with this, and I'll, I'm probably brief here, um, did keep uh, trying to articulate notions of dogmatic development, which tried to, again, reconcile subjective and, uh, and uh, more objective elements. Um, I'll skim over some of them. The names to know are Karl Rahner, um, uh, Edward Skillebex, and uh, Yves Conjar. And um, in particular, um, Skillebex and Conjar tried to balance uh, historically driven, contingency driven, and logical aspects of development and how to evaluate true and false developments. Uh, in fact, Conjar publishes a book just before the Vatican Council meets uh, called The Faith and Theology, where he works out, which is probably the most fleshed out, I think the best um, attempt at this before Vatican II, um, in which he gives, uh, again, he takes this Blondelian idea of a living faith, of a living tradition very seriously, where he thinks, again, the drivers of this are, you know, um, um, are, you know, not just the people's feelings, but you know, the liturgy and stuff like this, while um, conceding that the making explicit of truth was, for the most part, a matter of the intellect. Uh, you know, Yves Conjar was a Dominican, even though he goes to places where some of his fellow Dominicans didn't go, he was still enough of a, of a, of a, a Thomist to think in those terms, and um, for the most part has a fairly, uh, emphasizes history and contingency and all that stuff. Um, but still uh, managed to sort of balance them out a little better than some of these earlier thinkers had. Um, and in fact, what's going to happen is he's going to become very, very influential in Vatican II. But uh, one last thing to mention about these later thinkers, and this maybe this is in reaction to uh, Humani Generis, Rahner, Skillebex, Conjar, one of the things they do is they put a very heavy emphasis on the authority of the magisterium, that ultimately that basically they put um, they all de-emphasize, even uh, Conjar to a degree, logical um, theories of development, but they all put the, a, a lot of stress on the magisterium, its responsibility, its uh, supernatural ability even, to determine between true and false developments. I mention this because there's a trend here from Blondell to these people, even the modernists, of uh, subjectivity and then authority being the basis for determining what's true and false rather than reason, which I'll come back to. Uh, in terms of development. Hopefully I haven't bored you all to death yet. Only a few more minutes left, I promise. Uh, let me go here. Which brings us up to the present uh, in Vatican II. Vatican II in the crisis of doctrine, because this is where things kind of shift and uh, in major ways. And one of the things, one of the more, um, quite frankly, obnoxious buzzwords that comes out of the Second Vatican Council, there were many such buzzwords. Uh, is the one of a giornamento. And if you don't know what this means, this is an Italian word, meaning updating or bringing up to date. Why do I mention this? Um, this becomes one of the major themes that are attributed to the Second Vatican Council and its documents and what it was supposed to do. 
Uh, again, I've also given a lecture on Vatican II, so if you want to go see that, you can do that. But here I'm talking about specifically how it relates to the de development of doctrine. There were a lot of expectations for the council, um, even before it met, primarily because of, uh, uh, you know, the times themselves being what they were in the 1960s, but but also because John the 23rd, the Pope called it, used a lot of, um, I put this, um, I don't know how to put, he used a lot of rhetoric that suggested to people they were going to make changes. Uh, when he initially, um, uh, he calls for the council, says he's going to hold a council in January of 1959. He gives a homily on Pentecost in 1959, May of 1959, which he refers to the coming council as a new Pentecost. And he uses this phrase several times, by the way. Um, I mention this because it's clearly a metaphor. <laughs> um, some of the people who get sort of, and there's no way to put this, radicalized by the Second Vatican Council, I think take this a lot more literally, is my point. Um, in a speech to the Blessed uh, Sacrament Fathers uh, in Rome in 1961 before the council, uh, he says that its principal task, the coming council will be, quote, uh, will be with the conditions and modernization of the church after 20 centuries of life, unquote. And then finally, when he opens up the council, he gives a speech. Um, and this is where you get a lot of people when they attribute, you know, some people think the Second Vatican Council basically changed everything. That comes a lot of it from his rhetoric, which I don't think is anything more than rhetoric, but just to give you an idea of what he says, what gets people in this mindset uh, from his opening speech, he says, quote, when he's talking about what the purposes of the council, he said, what is needed at the present time is a new enthusiasm a new joy and serenity of mind in the unreserved acceptance by all the entire Christian faith without forfeiting that accuracy and presentation in its presentation, precision in its presentation, which characterized the proceedings of the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council, ties it to the past. What is needed is that the certain and immutable doctrine to which the faithful owe obedience be studied afresh and reformulated in contemporary terms. For this deposit of faith or truths which are contained in our time on our teaching is one thing. The manner in which these truths are set forth with their meaning preserved intact is something else, unquote. And if you didn't catch it, by the way, that's him embracing the Nouvelle Theologian's idea of, of separating expression from truth. Um, and I say it's because what happens, the reason why um, uh, uh, one of the things that happens at the Second Vatican Council is John the 23rd rehabilitates all those theologians, pretty much all those theologians that have been, been uh, under suspicion um, in the 1950s. And above all, Yves Conjar is vital in terms of uh, what comes out of the council and its documents. Nevertheless, um, there were actually two ver there were actually there actually and it does I should mention this more clearly here. Um, this is how uh, and it's only a brief statement I'll read it to you in a second I'll show it to you. Um, um, development of doctrine gets into the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Um, but one thing is been before I read this, uh, there actually was a, uh, um, before the council started, uh, commissions were set up to do drafts of, of um, things to be worked on at the council. And again, I've, I've talked about this in the lecture, but all the initial drafts were thrown out and replaced by, uh, by bishops who were being guided by people like Yves Conjar. But uh, the initial, there was an, in the initial draft, a draft for defending intact deposits of faith, which um, has a whole section 
on uh, on development of doctrine, which again sounds a lot more like those neo-scholastic theories I mentioned, which was much more conservative, much more um, much more emphasized the logical aspects of development is my point. And here, but they get thrown out. What get what's put in place is Dei Verbum, and I want to I'm actually going to show you this and try to share this because. Um, it's uh, it's pretty interesting, but let me have this here. Uh, maybe I don't have this here. Uh, oh no, I have this in my notes. Sorry, sorry, my my, my uh, oh, I'm gonna share it. Okay, uh, but this gets into uh, Dei Verbum, which is the um, constitution. It's the uh, oh boy, uh, I can't remember the name. But Dei Verbum is one of the documents. Anyway, this is in section eight uh, or paragraph eight of Dei Verbum, and this is its little little um, commentary on development of doctrine. This tradition, it's talking about sacred tradition, which comes from the apostles, develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. For there is a growth in the understanding of realities and the words which have been handed down. This happens through the contemplation and study made by believers who treasure these things in their hearts through a penetrating uh, of those who have received, penetrating understanding of the spiritual realities which they experience, and through the preaching of those who have received through Episcopal succession the sure gift of truth. For as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward toward the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. Unquote. And that's basically all they have in David Verbum. But as you can see from what I've read, that's basically the idea of these Nouvelle theologians. Um, that development happens because of penetrating understanding of the spiritual realities which they experience. That's kind of more subjective. And then through the preaching of those who receive the Episcopal succession, authority of the church. Uh, and so that idea gets enshrined in the documents of the Second Vatican Council. So it wins out basically in, uh, in ecclesiastical terms. Of course, what happens after that, and again, I'm not gonna go through this uh, into much detail, all hell breaks loose <laughs> after the Vatican Council, because as I've said elsewhere, um, again, I, The Spirit of Vatican II is actually the title of a book, which I recommend, by the way, by a very, very liberal Catholic writing about liberal Catholics in the 1960s, how they took um, Vatican II and what it meant. And what it meant for these uh, progressive Catholic types was the past is gone. Vatican II means we've gotten rid of the past. That, that's not what the documents say. It doesn't matter. That's what they took it to mean. Uh, and in fact, uh, they embraced a an obsession with the future, if you want to put it in those terms. Um, they abandon any sort of theory that saw legitimate developments as uh, binding in favor of, uh, uh, in favor of uh, doctrinal development as a, an open-ended process uh, in which the people of God, presumably um, theologians and, and priests who are on board with this stuff, um, could reshape the church's teachings with an eye toward the future. And so you have theories of development, which are really theories of complete break with the past, theories of rupture, if you want to use that phrase, um, become the norm in the academy. As far as I'm aware, I don't, I don't keep up that much anymore with academic theology. Um, there emerges a real quick split between where theologians want to go. And this is, a, by the way, a very important point to note. Um, <clears throat> because up until the 1960s, academic theologians in uh, Catholic universities and pontifical universities were as hidebound and conservative as any <laughs> any people you could meet. In fact, um, I mentioned John Henry Newman uh, after uh, the First Vatican Council had to respond to people's criticisms of uh, the doctrine of people infallibility, right? Well, what's gonna prevent people from 
the Pope from becoming a tyrant or just doing things on his own authority willy-nilly. And one of the, the things Newman said in response to this is that, well, um, theologians will keep him in check because he was assuming they'd be always be very conservative. <laughs> so it's a big thing that all of a sudden they take ra a radical line on things like this because it becomes a serious split from the theological academy, which just wholly embraces, goes way beyond Newman. We're way beyond Newman now. Um, to embracing every sort of modern theory they can get their hands on and calling it Catholic, even if it is or not. At the same time, however, uh, in the decades following this, the magisterium still does search for a more balanced view of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, development. And I had to mention this because I honestly, when I was doing research for this, I'd never heard of half of these documents, but there are about a half dozen or so magisterial documents issued from you can go back to Humani Generis that mentioned some of this in 1950, but from the 60s onward, a few papal encyclicals, um, some statements by the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the successor body to the, to the Inquisition, uh, as well as a, a, a document issued by the International Theological Commission, which is has a lot less authority, but it's, it's an official theological body associated with the, the, the Vatican, issued a series of statements um, dealing with development in which they worked out, I have to say, again, having read read some of these documents, read, uh, um, this is the argument of Guy Mancini, who's a Benedictine, who wrote an article on this, but they come to some very interesting points in responding to, you know, more radical theories of development. And they're kind of interesting, I won't mention this in too much, too much detail, but they're much more moderate than, what's, than what goes on in the academy. Um, they uh, make a good argument for the church's dogmas being transhistorical, not being totally subject to, um, I won't go through it, you want to ask me and get it to it later, but uh, they're much more moderate. Um, and this is apparently, I don't know if this, this, this goes through three pontificates through up through um, um, from Paul VI up to uh, John Paul II, uh, the last of these documents issued in 1998. My point is, you have a uh, an attempt to create some balance and stability in this in this doctrine how it's used, and then of course um, Francis became pope and everything became unbalanced <laughs> um, uh, because um, what happens with, of course with Francis he has invoked several times at least a couple times I know of um, the idea of doctrinal development to justify changes to church teaching the two most obvious ones. The first one is uh, his changes uh, to the catechism of the Catholic Church on the death penalty. And uh, if you don't know, the church basically up until the 20th century has always seen the death penalty as being legitimate. Uh, there have been Catholic thinkers in the past who you know, uh, may have been imposed in practice, but they all basically recognized that in principle, it was a legitimate form of punishment. Of course, in the 20th century, especially in the 1960s, you have a lot of thinkers, especially in Europe, turn sour on this, want to say that not that it's, um, well, John Paul II, of course, said that it was no longer necessary. That's a prudential judgment, basically, where he says it's, you know, society is, has grown and changed, so it's not needed for deterrence purposes. Um, John Paul II still admitted that it was, in principle, um, still a legitimate thing. Whereas uh, Francis had the catechism changed to say that it was, that the death penalty is no longer, in, is, is inadmissible, whatever that means <laughs> in, Catholic, in Catholic thought. Um, and um, 
the uh, head of the current head of the CDF. I think it's Francis Ladaria. Ladaria is his last name. Anyways, Spanish guy wrote in the letter accompanying this change that this was a legitimate development of doctrine, but gave no explanation whatsoever of how it was <laughs> or how this development occurred or anything else. Uh, Francis himself has talked about how the conditions of, no long, uh, of modern society no longer require the death penalty, which would be a provincial judgment, but he has also basically come out and said that it's contrary to human dignity and that it's basically always wrong, right? Like absolutely in every situation, just like say abortion has been taken to be in Catholic thinking. Um, that first explanation, and again, he says contradictory things all the time. So that first explanation is consonant with Catholic teaching uh, as it's been more or less unbroken. The second one is not. Um, the second one directly, second explanation contradicts it. Um, he's also invoked this uh, a second time, um, just a few months ago actually, uh, where he, um, and this is a change in canon law and not necessarily in doctrinal terms, but he, um, uh, he has admitted women to minor orders and minor orders, this is confusing. They were basically done away with uh, after Vatican II, but they're kind of still there for some reason. And they've always been limited to men. Uh, he has now changed canon law to allow women to take minor orders. Minor orders are a non-ordained form of ministry, long story. Uh, he invoked in the letter announcing this, this is a development of doctrine no explanation <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, it is because the authority of the church says so, according to Francis. So you have uh, from uh, uh, now development occurring apparently with no reference, no rationality for it basically whatsoever. Okay, we're almost done. I promise I won't hold you much longer than this. Um, a few conclusions about this whole, again, this may seem kind of disconnected, just a few trends I've noticed when I went through all this stuff. You go back to Newman. Uh, note how the idea of development of doctrine began as an apologetic um, tool, right? To explain um, what the church teaches to people who um, didn't believe it, Protestants, non-believers. Non What's changed, of course, if you didn't notice it going through all this, is that it's no longer uh, something directed toward people outside the church. It's directed at the church itself. <laughs> Instead of being used to explain what the church teaches, it's being used to determine what the church teaches, at least by the more radical exponents of where this has gone. And so that's a huge shift, obviously, right, um, uh, over, over the time frame. Probably, definitely not what Newman intended. Uh, when he uh, when he came up with the idea or his idea anyway. One other thing I've noticed is that all these theories I've talked about, uh, not Newman, he's different, but the ones who are successors to him in some regards, even the scholastics who didn't really like him all that much, um, Blondell, the modernists, the Nouvelle Theologians, um, there are two things they leave out when I think of how doctrine actually develops. One is that other than Newman, none of them spend a whole lot of time trying to determine, determine what a corruption is. Other words, they don't give you a lot of, okay, what are some criteria for when something's gone wrong that I can sort of, you know, use to determine this? And um, I said that because that was one of, of course, Newman's big um, goals in his work was to distinguish between the two. 
whereas it's only they're only focused on developments, basically authentic ones for the most part, later thinkers. I think the reason why for that, by the way, is probably because they're all Catholic and they think, well, in the end, we can just sort of rely on the uh, church's authority, I think. The other thing, and this is actually the biggest lacunae in all of these, except for, and Newman was different because he studied the Arian controversy. And this is me speaking. If you want what I think the major driver of uh, development has been or often is, conflict. Development happens when people have fights about what things mean and then somebody gets condemned as a heretic. And I am thinking of the Arian crisis. I am thinking of the Council of Trent, or at least doctrines are. Um, those types of fights, which are, you know, there's the stakes are eternal, right? If you get this wrong, you're condemned as a heretic. Um, they bring out, they make explicit. I think, I think that I think that's really important. You can understand the development of the history of Christian doctrine that way without that. Newman, by the way, understood that, um, being the good historian that he was. I don't think most of these late people are that really great historians, to be honest with you, when they write on this stuff. They're more theologians and philosophers. Um, and by the way, there are other reasons for this. <clears throat> I mentioned how the Nouvelle theologians wanted to get in touch with contemporary thought. One of the things that they were big on, especially Yves Conjar, who's the most important of these thinkers for development of doctrine, they were very much into ecumenism. Um, they wanted to reach out to Protestants and Orthodox. So naturally their theory of development didn't emphasize this because they didn't want, they wanted to try to get beyond those sorts of things, which of course I think noble as it was may be a mistake. <laughs> um, because, when this is one of the things, again, this is an obvious trend I, you should have picked up from the lecture. Um, and all of this has been a downplaying, the, uh, I think a very serious and very bad way of the role of reason in these theories. And I say this because, again, if you're wondering, um, you know, some of these later thinkers, Blondell, the Nouvelle theologians, uh, criticized scholastics thinkers for being kind of ahistorical. They kind of were, uh, particularly in one way. They, they, were, they were reluctant to acknowledge that, yes, a lot of the things that actually cause developments, they are kind of subjective and irrational a lot of times. They're not, history is not a syllogism. It doesn't work like that, right? It's messy, it's contingent, all other stuff. On the other hand, right, and again, I don't know if you can say, because again, they're right also in saying that sometimes you can't draw a logical, uh, draw a, um, a, a development of doctrine logically from an implicit, uh, explicit one from an implicit one logically. However, and this is again, something that's in Newman, it's very nuanced, it's very, you know, it's very e easy to lose sight of these nuances. Um, logic is important for, for, I think, for determining what is not a development. Um, other words, it's really, its purpose is negative. It's to say, okay, this contradicts, can't do it. This contradicts revelation, can't do it. Um, instead of restrict development, really, which, um, in fact, ironically, one of the things that um, Newman said would be a break or should be a break or was a break on doctrinal development to keep it from corrupting was the authority of the papacy. <laughs> um, um, he didn't think of it as being something to encourage developments, ironically enough. Um, and I mentioned that because, um, again, that role of reason, uh, uh, again, uh, one of the things that motivate a lot of these thinkers like Blondell, Maurice Blondell is very important for all the people I've talked about in here, because they so wanted so badly uh, to appeal to people. Again, they're thinking in terms of apologetics, right? 
modern world seems to have just tuned out the church, right? They're desperate to find ways to do that. And I think they de-emphasized that, that logical element part because it, it, it restricted their room for maneuver, apologetically speaking. They couldn't just you know, grab this thing here and there and, and treat you know, uh, the church's teaching like it was changing clothes or something like that. Um, and so I think that was one of the reasons why that happened. And then finally, um, this is a consequence, I think, of downplaying logic too much in this whole process. I think it creates a problem because if you, and again, when I say emphasize, emphasis on things, I don't say that, you know, it's not like, it's a matter of emphasis, right? There are, of course, subjective factors involved in development. But if all the emphasis is laid on either subjective, you know, whatever, in terms of uh, uh, causing developments, and then on the other hand, the magisterium's authority, you're gonna to run to a problem. And that problem is, of course, people being the emotional creatures they are, when they want the church to change its teaching, um, there's no sort of rationale for telling them no, because <laughs> you've eliminated reason really in practice, right? Um, it's all either subject, subjective feelings or the authority of the magisterium. My, my point is that can leave the authority of the magisterium really exposed to people who Again, they may have gotten the idea that the whole purpose of that authority is to sign off on their subjective notions of what the faith should be. Uh, which again, uh, I think all this ultimately goes back to a, a, a sincere and necessary concern about how to present the, the church's teaching to the modern world. But it has kind of, to say the least, gone off the rails uh, in the last, um, well, especially in the last, uh, what is this, this is 2021, last eight years, <laughs> it'll be eight years in February. Um, uh, definitely gone off the rails since then, but even within academic theology, it's just, there's no way I think you can square a lot of those radical theories with anything like Catholicism or even Christianity. I think they're, they're, uh, they'll, they, uh, um, they'll dissolve it if you apply them too, too straightforwardly. Uh, and thus, I think there are limits to the development of the development of the uh, development of the idea, the development of doctrine, in other words. So 